And Father, we do acknowledge once again our total dependence upon you. Whenever we open up the scriptures and read the word, it is easy for us to see fog instead of faith, to be confused instead of clearly see Christ. So open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your holy word. We are not proud enough to think we can do this on our own. Whether we've been doing it for a day or a decade, we need you. Spirit of God, work in our midst for the glory of the Father that we might see the Son. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Martin Luther, the man who in Germany was lecturing on the book of Romans, was still seeking God and could not find him. There was an emptiness in his soul. There was bondage in his life. He tells us that he thought that the righteousness of God was a condemning righteousness. Every time he read that phrase in the scriptures, the righteousness of God, he thought of God's holy standard and therefore his relationship to the holy standard of God. And Luther was honest enough to realize he was a sinner and therefore felt the righteousness was a condemning righteousness. Now, mind you, he was praying more than most people of his day. He was uh, giving the alms to the poor he was reading through the scripture, he was fasting, he was doing everything he was told to do religiously, but his heart was empty, and he was crying out to know God. And then he saw it. He saw it in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness of God has been revealed and is received by faith. God gives his own righteousness to those who believe, and he makes them righteous. The righteousness that they receive acquire by faith and by faith alone. In Romans chapter 3, verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, and there is no difference between the Jew or the Greek. Luther saw in that moment that the righteousness of God was not something which a wrathful God requires of humanity, but something that a merciful God bestows upon humanity through faith in Christ. And everything changed. His view of humanity, God's view of humanity, greatly differed from Luther's, for God so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son. The sinner was no longer the object of God's wrath, he said, but the sinner was the object of God's mercy. And he wrote these words, when I grasped the essence of the righteousness of God, I felt as if I were born anew and transferred into paradise. Now, if you know anything about the life of Martin Luther, there'll be many things you can point to that you see is grievously wrong. But in this, Luther is absolutely right. Understanding the righteousness of God and your position to it 
makes all the difference in the world. And the gospel is good news that comes to us in the midst of our brokenness and in the midst of our self-condemnation and in the midst of our clear sin, which brings just judgment, the gospel breaks like the dawn in a dark day. Good news. Good news. Open up in your Bibles to the book of Romans in chapter 1. And we want to focus on really verse 14, 15, 16, and 17, but four verses and I will run out of time. It is so good. Pastor Doug prayed about going deep into the scriptures. Well, here's a portion of God's pool that you can step in and sink immediately and not seem to touch bottom. But let's try to swim a little, not to take in too much water, but to understand what is being said. Many scholars believe that verse 17 is the text of which the rest of the book of Romans is the explanation. It's a good way to think of it. The sermon text and then the exposition to follow. It is indeed like the most majestic summit in a range of incredible mountains. It stands above everything else and it's amazing we get it at the very beginning. So it will become for us a guide When you're walking through an unknown place and you see the North Star, you have a guide. And this will become something like a North Star to us. So I want to actually start with the verse 15, Romans 1, 15, where Paul says, I am eager to preach the good news. And I'll try to insert that word good news instead of gospel. They're identical. They're synonymous. But the gospel can sometimes, that word can sometimes to the uninitiated be like gobbledygook. Gospel. What is gospel? Well, it is good news. It's the good news that God has given to us concerning his son that leads to our salvation if we believe. So, Uh, Taking the lead from the New Living Translation will translate the word gospel into good news. And Paul said, I am eager to preach the good news. If you want a summary of the good news, you can read 1 Corinthians, first three verses. If you want to understand the heart of the good news, here we have it in this section of Romans and in other places throughout the book. Now, why is Paul so eager to preach the gospel? That's the obvious question. When others are hesitant and reluctant and afraid to do so, Paul is eager. Why so? Well, if you go back early on in the chapter we've already studied, you've got multiple reasons, and the good news or gospel is mentioned about seven times. Let me just give you a quick list. In verse 1, Paul says that he was sent out to preach the good news, and that's why he's eager to do so, sent and called by God. In verse 2, the good news was promised long ago by the prophets, So, indeed, that makes it vitally important. The good news, verse 3, regards Jesus Christ, the Son, born of the seed of David. 
declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection. Verse 9, Paul says, I serve God with all of my heart by spreading the good news, which is preaching. Verse 15, I am eager to preach it. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the good news. And verse 17, this good news tells how God makes us right with him. And that's why Paul's eager to preach this good news, because it is wonderful tidings to lost sinners. You think about it, if you were in bondage, let's say back in World War II, in one of the Nazi prison camps, and day after day seemed the same, and you didn't know whether you would be executed or whether you would be left to starve, and someone comes running into the camp, another ally saying, I've got good news, you're free. The war's over. Reconciliation has been made, you're free to go. Would that be good news? I mean, you can... You may not even understand that unless you can put yourself somehow in that position. But if you were in that position, it would be incredible news. You can hardly talk about the suffering you've experienced, but oh, the good news you'd be quick to embrace. And that's what we're talking about. But Paul was eager to preach the good news, not only because he was sent and called of God, but secondly, because he had a sense of obligation to humanity. Now that is verse 14. I am obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the unwise. Obligated like a mother to a child. Obligated like a soldier to a country. Obligated like a doctor to a patient. Obligated like a believer to a non-believer to share the good news. By the way, the good news wasn't given to you just so you could enjoy it. It was given to you so that you could share it, right? Now you say, well, Paul's an apostle, and indeed he was sent and called at a different level than we ever will be. But in the general, in the main, all who embrace Jesus Christ must go forth with the gospel. Sometimes the word debtor is used here for the word obligated, and you get into a debt when you borrow money or you get into a debt where someone gives you money for another. You become uh, the executor of a trust. And that's exactly the term Paul uses throughout the Word of God, the New Testament. Here's 1 Thessalonians 2.4. We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. We've been entrusted by God with the gospel. It's for someone else. And Paul sensed the obligation to go. You notice in the scripture he says, I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. A little bit of uh, poetry here, uh, following the lines of Hebrew poetry, where there are two lines that say the same thing. So the cultured and the non-cultured, the educated and those who are utterly devoid of education, the sophisticated, and the barbarians. By the way, the uncultured or non-Greeks is actually the Greek word barbaros, where we get the English word barbarian. And Paul said he indeed was a debtor. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 
I feel an obligation to take the gospel to all kinds of people. So to the weak, I will, I will become like someone weak to the uncultured. So sophisticated or barbarian, Paul is there to preach the gospel. And when you have a debt, don't you want to eliminate that debt? I mean, isn't there something in you that longs to be freed from that hanging over your head? Whether it's a mortgage on a house or a loan for school, and I know you're hoping that the government will just say, forget about it all. But that's the worst idea in the world. Well, maybe not the worst idea, but it ranks in the top 10. It's a dishonorable thing to leave a debt unpaid. But obligation does not always translate into eagerness. One of the first jobs I ever had was mowing lawns. A friend of the family named Jim Fitzpatrick had his own business. He developed clients throughout the area and he would mow lawns. And he said, Don, I need people to mow lawns, trim trees. I had very little skills, but I had mowed a lawn before. So apparently that was good enough for Jim and I was hired. What he didn't do is really ask about my character when it comes to wanting to have a job. So I told Jim, yes, I'm, I'm gonna mow lawns for you. I'm willing to do it. I like the fact that I'm gonna earn some money. I was obligated, but I was not eager when he knocked on my door at 6 a.m. and said, let's go. I remember pretending I was sick. This was before I was a believer. <laughs> I think. <laughs> so Jim, I just, Called him Fitzy. Fitzy, I don't want to go. I mean, I, I just don't feel that good. He said, no, come on, you got to go. He said, pulled me out of bed with my parents' support. <laughs> I was obligated, but I was not eager. And believers, we are obligated to share the gospel, but we're often reluctant, are we not? That's the modern mood. The worldview sharing the gospel is inappropriate and offensive Paul said it's exciting, and he was enthusiastic to share the good news. I can't wait to see you. So just by way of review, Paul makes a startling affirmation. I am eager to preach the good news. And the reasons for that, he is sent and called by God, and he has a sense of obligation to man. But Paul also makes another amazing affirmation when he tells us in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the good news. I'm not ashamed. And here again, we read it in our modern setting in the 21st century and say, if if I were honest, I would have to say often, I am ashamed. Or at least I appear to be. Jesus had to warn his disciples, Mark chapter 8, don't be ashamed of me, showing that it was a possibility and indeed a probability with weak believers who are seeking to follow him. Paul talks about shame in only one other place. Here he says he's not ashamed, but in 1 Timothy chapter 1 he says to Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ or be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Why? Because Timothy was timid 
and had a tendency to be ashamed. I fear that the church of Jesus Christ, and I include myself in this indictment, that we don't sense the obligation like we should. We're not eager to go and share, and we're often ashamed. Shouldn't be, but we are. Here's the miracle. God is not ashamed of us. Hebrews 2.11. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. <laughs> wow. So Paul is, is emphasizing that his own heart, which was against the gospel, is now all in, and he's not ashamed of the good news. And he gives two reasons. Here's the first reason. Because the good news is the power of God that brings salvation. Here's Paul's counteroffensive. You think you're ashamed of the gospel, you ought to be proud of the gospel because it's God's power unleashed. And by the way, the Romans knew something about power. They defined it in that day. It was the Roman armies, legions that controlled the better part of the Western world. It was the Roman Navy that dominated the seas. It was soon to be the Roman language in Latin that was overcoming Greek even as a trade language. Roman justice was the arbitrator of what is right and wrong and who will live or die. Romans defined power and they thought the gospel to be a little consequence and dismissed it as nothing. And Paul said, oh, it's the power of God. And you know what he uses? He uses the word dunamis. You've heard this before, the Greek word dunamis, where we get the English word dynamite, which means it has power to influence in great ways. I, I, love, uh, what, I love this. Some Bible teacher said, for dynamite, dynamite to be effective, it must have a fuse and it must have fire. Preaching is the fuse, and the Holy Spirit is the fire. And when the word of God is preached under the power of the Holy Spirit, it's like dynamite, dynamite breaking the hard hearts of men and women. The gospel has power to break your broken world to let you see it, and power to rescue you, because that's what that word salvation means. The Jews knew the word salvation as a sense of deliverance. They were delivered from 400 years uh, of, as slaves in Egypt, rescued from the threatening waters of the Red Sea. They were released from the bondage of Babylon. They knew what it was to be rescued. But it's interesting, Paul never uses this word rescue, which is translated saved or salvation in our text. He never uses it as uh, a means to describe release from temporary danger. The Apostle Paul always uses the word salvation in the context of being delivered from sin and death and saved for glory and life. It has this negative side to it and the positive side to it. Saved from judgment. We are condemned already. 
and saved by righteousness to enjoy the life and the glory of God. And Paul said that this power that brings salvation comes from God to everyone, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The priority of the Jew simply reminds us that they are called of God. It starts with a Jew, but doesn't stop with a Jew. Paul is clinging to the Old Testament uh, command given, covenant given to Abraham in the book of Genesis, that I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all nations. So he chose the Jew as his people and he formed them and he delivered them and rescued them and gave them the word of God and gave them the ordinances and to them, he brought salvation, not that they might embrace it and keep it to themselves, but that they might be the conduit to take the good news to the world. You see, what had happened in Rome is that all the Jews had been kicked out. An edict by Claudius, the emperor. And there developed in Rome this anti-Jew sentiment, this ethnic animosity anti-Semitism, which we see growing even in our world today. And so Paul, I think, is probably fighting against that, resisting that trend by retaining the biblical focus of to the Jew first, but then from the Jew to the Greek, which is simply another way to say everyone. The Greek and the non-Greeks, the sophisticated and the barbarians, the Jew, the Gentile, to everyone. This gospel comes forth, which to me is an amazing thing. It is the power of God, the good news. It is the power of God to bring salvation. It is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone. It is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. There's the lifeline. Faith. Now, you can define faith in many ways, and you've got to be careful because there are different aspects to faith. And if you define faith the wrong way and plug it into a section of Scripture, you'll come up with the wrong answer. So faith is believing truth. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. Faith is believing something to the point where you obey that something. We've already noticed the phrase, obedience of the faith or obedience to the faith. This whole idea of believing truth is vitally important, but merely believing truth that does not touch your life is not the biblical faith described. Faith without works is dead. I like the book written by James Edwards. The title, Faith is a Noun and a Verb. Understand the faith and then live by faith. So he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. But then he's not ashamed of the gospel because of verse 17. It is God's plan to make us right with him. Verse 17, for in the good news... A righteousness, some translations have the righteousness of God, but I think 
a righteousness of God hits the point better in the context. A righteousness from God has been revealed. God is righteous. Here again, we have to understand that the righteousness of God is a multifaceted term. The righteousness of God can refer to his character, his attributes. He is righteous in essence and nature. Secondly, the righteousness of God can refer to his faithfulness. What he does, he does faithfully and righteously. All his actions are right. But here, the righteousness of God is his achievement. Here, the righteousness of God, get this, is a status that he gives to the believer. This is something he gives away, his righteousness. So the gospel reveals a righteousness that God gives to those who believe. And here's where Luther saw it. It's not condemning me. I'm already condemned. The righteousness of God is saving me. Because what is the righteousness of God? Jesus dying on the cross for your sin and mine. Being raised from the dead by the power of God, showing God has accepted his sacrifice and inviting all people to believe. Not just here, but to believe here. So the life is radically changed. You have the same idea in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19. A righteousness from God has been given. And it is a righteousness by faith and faith alone. Once you become a believer, the scripture encourages you to live righteously. But coming to God as a sinner who needs to be saved, the righteousness of God is his gift in the person of his son, and that's good news. The Amplified Bible translates verse 17 like this, for in the gospel, a righteousness which God imputes is revealed, which God gives away. And the NIV says it very well, for in the good news, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, which simply means only by faith. That's a very good translation. From the beginning to the end, it's all of faith. Faith increases, yes, but that's not what it's saying here. It says that you receive this righteousness that God offers offers by faith and faith alone. Think about it. If you had to do something to earn this righteousness, you would never be done doing There would always be more to do because you're trying to gain a righteousness that is infinite, a righteousness that is perfect, and you're already starting out in the hole, a hole that you can't even climb out of, let alone build upon. Oh, if your acceptance before God is based on your good works, you're done. I like the way the old country preacher used to put it. If Jesus fails me, I'm a goner. And that is true. Now, if you don't see this, if you don't see your own sin, if you don't see your own need, 
then the righteousness of God means nothing to you. But we're going to see in the book of Romans that Paul spends some time showing us that we're all sinners, Jew and Gentile, on equal footing. We've all fallen short of the perfect righteousness of God, his glory. And then he ends with a quotation from Habakkuk 2, which is rather interesting. And this quotation from Habakkuk 2 says, the just shall live by faith, or the righteous shall live by faith. What is interesting is that Paul uses this particular quotation three times in the New Testament. We saw it in the book of Romans. It's in the book of Galatians. Or excuse me, you saw it in the book of Hebrews. It's in the book of Galatians. And now we see it again in the book of Romans. The background is Habakkuk, the prophet, is complaining that God is going to use the wicked Chaldeans to come down and judge the people of Israel. Now, he'd been complaining before that about all the sin in Israel, and God said, I see it, I'll take care of it. I'm going to send the Babylonians down to teach you a lesson. And Habakkuk says, I have a greater problem now than I did before. How can you use wicked people to save the righteous? <laughs> Just, I laugh when I hear him calling his own people righteous. I mean, before they were sinners. That's what he was complaining about. Now, compared to the Babylonians, we're not so bad. When you, complain, when you compare yourselves with others, you always compare wrong, in the wrong, one way or the other. God says, no, I know what I'm doing. They're going to come down and really give you a hard time. But I want you to understand this. The Babylonian's heart is puffed up within him, and he shall die, and I'll bring judgment on him. But the just shall live by faith. The first time Paul quoted that was in Galatians, not Romans. Although Romans hits us before in our Bibles. Years before, he used it in the book of Galatians in the sense that you cannot be saved by keeping the law. You must be saved by faith. And that's why I, I love the translation that comes. Verse 17, Romans 17. For this good news reveals a righteousness from God. And notice the, uh, what is it, orange print at the bottom? This is from the Revised Standard Translation. He who through faith is made righteous shall live. You have to think about it for a moment, but that is a better perspective. His point is, and right in line with everything that he's been saying, God reveals a righteousness from heaven. It's his gift of righteous status to the believer and it only comes to the believer, and it's offered to everyone. Just as Habakkuk says, the one who through faith is made righteous shall live his life. The righteous will live by faith, have eternal life, or the righteous will live their life by faith. Both are true. But the emphasis here is on being made righteous by faith. See the difference? And once you are made righteous by faith, then you live by faith. The righteous will live by their faith. For it's the faith that draws them in to the family of God. And it's the faith, like an empty hand, that receives the righteousness of God. Ender, Ender's Nigrin 
in his good commentary in the book of Romans, made this observation. The word faith occurs 25 times in the first four chapters of the book of Romans and the word life only twice. But from chapters five to eight, the word life is recorded 25 times and the word faith only twice. What is it getting at? We're made righteous by faith. And then once saved, we live our life by faith. The focus is on how we live. It is an amazing story, is it not? Our concern is not in the text here of Habakkuk and Paul's words of Romans. Our concern is not how righteous people live, but how sinful people become righteous. And the answer is faith. So I don't know how long you have been fighting with this peace with God. I fought quite a long time. Because there was something in my understanding and in my poor theology that made my performance part of my acceptance before God. And my performance was so lousy, I rarely had peace. That sound like you? You know, what am I going to do? Well, I'll read through the Bible this year, and that's great until January 15th when I stop reading. And now what am I doing? I can't catch up too much. I give up. Another failure before God. I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to pray three times a day. I'll pray eight times a day. One time I determined to, to pray two hours every day that lasted two days. And I felt like a failure. And maybe my motive was wrong. Until I saw that the just are made so by faith in the person of the Son. And that's why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. Look at it this way by way of review. Paul said, I'm eager to preach the gospel because I was sent and called and there's a sense of obligation. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it possesses God's power to rescue us and it reveals God's righteousness to save us. And that's why Paul was not ashamed. Calvin Miller tells us of a fable a little girl who's had a mother whose face was greatly disfigured and scarred by an early injury. The little girl knew nothing about it. But as the girl grew up and made friends, gained her own identity, she became more and more aware of how hideous her mom looked and ashamed at her appearance. They'd walk down the street and the girl's friends would sometimes go to the other side of the street Soon the little girl, as she grew into her teens, began to avoid her mom, found ways not to be with her. She got married, moved away, and rarely saw her mom. Her mom suffered financial setbacks, and the girl did little. But one day, the daughter discovered some old diaries from her mom and began to read through them, and it described a horrible fire that had taken place. 
where the mom had gone in and scooped that daughter who was a baby from death in the flames and saved her little daughter at the expense of scarring her own body. The truth dawned on the little girl that her mother's horrific scars came at the expense of saving her life. And now she had a new shame. Ashamed that she didn't love her mom. She went to her, threw her arms around that scarred neck and kissed that once appalling face that now looked so beautiful and said, I'm sorry. Thank you for all you've done. And a new relationship began. The world sees Christ as a failed itinerant preacher. And some see the scars of Christ as defeat on the cross. But we see the beauty in those wounds, don't we? (laughs) Because that's my Savior. And how could we be ashamed of him? Let's pray. Oh, Father and our God, I fear that some sit in this auditorium without your peace. They still feel condemned in their efforts to appease you, to satisfy you, to please you, all in their own doing fall short. And their failures only intensify their guilt. But today, Lord, let them see, as Luther did, God has revealed a righteousness. It's his achievement. And he offers it to any believing sinner, which makes us just as righteous as Jesus and gives us peace with God that never ends. Oh Lord, I pray that someone will pray today. Lord Jesus, save me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. Oh God, thank you for providing my salvation in Christ. I embrace him by faith. I believe. And I will rest, I will rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. My Lord, my Savior, and my God. Oh, that the world might taste and see the riches of his grace. The arms of love that compass me would all mankind embrace. Amen.